Since the beginning of the year, you know that we're currently in the midst of a study through the book of First Peter. But today, because we have the privilege of partaking together in the Lord's table, I'd like to just step out of First Peter, if we might, and go to the book of First Corinthians chapter 15. And really more than a, than a sermon this morning, this is an invitation. It's an invitation for you to come to the Lord's table. We're coming to the Lord's table as a church today in obedience to the Lord's command. It is an incredible joy for us to regularly participate together in this ordinance, this, this command of our Lord. And if you're relatively new to our fellowship, you should know that it's our desire to seek to obey the Lord Jesus Christ as he told his church Uh, as as we're told that his church is supposed to obey him uh, by participating together regularly in the Lord's Supper as we remember him. Now, in remembering him, we are looking back on the cross of Christ. We're looking back on what he has accomplished for his church, having given himself for his church. But not only are we looking back on the cross of Christ, we are also looking forward to his coming. You see, right now, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting and he is making intercession for his church in preparation for the great day in which he will gather together those for whom he died in his very presence in heaven where we will always be with the Lord. And this meal, this table that is set before us this morning is actually intended to be a signpost of sorts, a signpost for Christ. It is a remembrance of Christ. As I said, his cross and his coming, his substitutionary atonement and his second appearance. And what I want to do this morning is invite you to come to this table by looking at our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Let me just read verses 1 and 2, and that will kind of set the context of the tone for us this morning. The Apostle Paul says to these Corinthian believers, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. When we come together to the Lord's table It is a solemn joy for us as a church. It's a solemn joy for me to invite you to come to this table. It's solemn because I'm going to be making a distinction this morning. I am only inviting believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to this table. And so it is incumbent on every one of us that you pay very close attention as we work through this text to make sure that you are one for whom this table is intended. The way that you can understand that, the way that you can know if this table is intended for you, is to ask whether or not you have received the gospel message. That is just to ask whether or not you have taken the gospel as your own, and whether you have received it unto yourself, whether or not you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have, then you can say, this table is for me. And that's why it's such a joy for me. 
It's solemn, but it's a solemn joy. It's a joy for me to invite you to this table. It's a joy because in this, in this very message of the gospel, we are called, as Paul says, to stand firm. We are standing firm in the gospel as the assurance of our salvation. We are standing firm in the gospel as the assurance of our salvation, our rescue from the wrath of God against our sin. And so our text this morning makes this declaration. Now, I know our ESV makes it sound like some kind of gentle reminder that Paul is giving. But it is anything but that. It is anything but a gentle reminder. Chapter 15, as Paul is closing out this letter, this first letter to the, to the Corinthians, is a bold declaration of the truth. It is a clear declaration of the gospel. In fact, that word that's translated here, remind, is a word that speaks of a teacher who unfolds divine things. It refers to one who proclaims divine truth. And that's what Paul is doing here, friends. Paul is proclaiming divine truth. He is declaring divine things. Paul is declaring the gospel. And I want you to remember, it is the gospel of God, which is is God's message. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And one of the things that's important to point out as we get going on in this text, and I'm really only intending this to be a brief overview of this text, but I do want to point out to you in verse 3 that this message that Paul is delivering here is a derived message. In other words, it doesn't originate with him. He didn't pull this out of his mind. He didn't pull it out of the air somewhere. This message is a derived message. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This message came not from himself. This message came from God. Now the question is, what message? What is this message? What is this gospel that was preached and received? Because on that, my friends, hinges the answer to the question, is this table for you? And so this morning, I want to declare to you, as we walk through this text, four primary truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the four? One, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Two, he was buried. Three, Christ rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Four, he appeared. Those four primary truths of the gospel. And the reason that we're doing this is so that we can have confidence when we come to this table this morning. The confidence to actually come to this table as it is prepared and intended for us. And my hope is that after hearing this message today, you will be able to say, that table is for me. That was prepared for me. And may it be that you and I come to this table with such a settled conviction that there is a reservation here. There is a table, there is a seat with my name on it, with your name on it. And so let's look at these four primary truths of the gospel. Number one, he says in verse three, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This this needs to be declared once again. It needs to be declared 
often. It needs to be declared over and over and over again. But not only does it need to be declared, it needs to be heard. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, there's a lot of things that we can say, and I've already told you we're not going to get... get into detail here, but just an overview. But I want to point out two things about this statement. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. The first thing I want to point out to you is the substitutionary nature of Christ's work. The substitutionary nature of Christ's work. When Paul says Christ died, folks, that's an important statement. And he did, he's not just choosing words willy-nilly. The Holy Spirit is the one moving Paul to write and to use these actual words. The word Christ is not Jesus' middle name. He's not Jesus Christ. The word Christ is a reference to his office. He is the Christ. That's the New Testament way of referring to the Old Testament word Messiah. It means the anointed one, the appointed one, the one who was anointed from before the foundation of the world. And what you need to understand is that the Lord Jesus was not a happenstance. He came as an intention of the divine covenant of redemption. In other words, Jesus Christ is the eternally anointed, appointed one from before the foundation of the world. It was agreed between the persons of the Trinity that the son would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And the Lord Jesus Christ came in order to die in behalf of our sins. His was a substitutionary sacrifice. Our transgressions against God were the very reasons that the Lord Jesus came to die. My lies and my deceit and my lusts and my envy and my cursing and my hatred and my blasphemy and my selfish pride and my idolizing of self and things and people and my drunkenness and my adultery and my disobedience, those were the reasons for the death of Jesus Christ. He was, his was a substitutionary sacrifice. The sins that only ever earned the wrath of God. He took on himself and paid the price in my stead. The substitutionary nature of Christ's sacrifice. But next I want you to think about the scriptural nature of Christ's work. Not just the substitutionary nature, but the scriptural nature. Christ died for our sins, what? According to... To the scriptures. That is to say that this substitutionary atonement is exactly what the scriptures foretold. Do you remember Jesus in Luke chapter 22 and 24 saying those very things? He took them to the scriptures and showed them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter does the same thing. He rivets this message where? In the scriptures. This is the scriptural fulfillment, or rather I say, the fulfillment of the scriptures written hundreds of years in advance. Think of Isaiah 53. He was bruised, what? For our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What is so stunning about the person and work of Jesus Christ is that hundreds of years before he came to earth, these very things were predicted by the scriptures. They were predicted. They were fulfilled just as they were predicted. And so this this declaration of the gospel begins with Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the substitutionary nature of his work, the scriptural nature of his work. But then he goes on and says, secondly, he was buried. The fact that he was buried is a verification of what? His death. Now that might seem somewhat insignificant and maybe unnecessary to us, but it's surely not. In fact, just this past week, I was faced with the significance of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? There is an entire false religion that takes as a central tenet that it was not actually Jesus who died on the cross. Liberal Christianity would teach that there was just a swoon, that Jesus didn't really die Islam teaches that there was this great switcheroo, that it wasn't actually the person Jesus who died on the cross. But not only does he say he was buried as a validation of his death, but it says he was buried as a validation of his humanity. He really died. No swoon, no switcheroo. The Lord Jesus Christ died as was attested by many surrounding the cross that day. And you have to deal with that, friends. If you're here today and you've never placed truly, truly placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are here today and that's you, you actually have to deal with this fact. You have to explain the fact of his burial. And you have to explain the fact of his death. You can't just sit this one out. You have to render a verdict this morning. You you can't walk out of here undecided. You have to render a verdict this morning on the death and burial of Jesus Christ. If he died, why? If he was buried, why? He's declaring to us the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. Third truth, he declares. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. If if his bodily death validates his humanity, then, his, then certainly his bodily resurrection validates what? His deity. The resurrection of Christ serves as the basis for the believer's hope of a future resurrection, which actually is the very point of this chapter. And notice what he's doing here. In this declaration that Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures, he's making a statement of fact. What is the fact? The same way in Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 verse 25 that he was raised for our, and you remember what he says? Our justification. In Romans 4.25, it's it's the very resurrection of Jesus Christ that in the words of John Calvin confers righteousness upon us. It is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, our sins were propitiated, but it is in his resurrection that we find the perfect righteousness of Christ procured on our behalf. Not not only does he pay for our sins as the sinless substitute, but listen, he confers on us the perfect righteousness of Christ himself. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul declares the fact of his resurrection here. The Lord Jesus who died for our sins was buried, also rose again the third day, declaring for us that everyone who believes on him could be justified. That is the judicial act of God to declare guilty sinners to be righteous. But not only is Paul declaring a fact here, you also notice that he is, he is declaring what has become for us the very foundation of the Christian faith, the very foundation of the Christian hope. The Apostle Paul grounds his message not in his experience, though he probably could have. But what does he ground this message in? He grounds it in that phrase, according to the scriptures. It is in accordance with the scriptures. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 12, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so Jesus would be buried and what? Rise again on the third day. The foundation for the teaching of resurrection is firmly based in the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. Christ rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And fourth fact that he declares, he appeared. Look down at verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then... He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. As the burial of Christ substantiated his death, so the bodily appearances of Christ substantiate his resurrection. And what I find interesting here in this declaration that Paul makes concerning his appearances is how he carefully notes the chronology of his appearances. You see the word then, 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 then. Now, I want to say this again, friends, especially for those who are, are not holding to the gospel. You have got to deal with this. If you've never truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot just sit on the silence. You have to give your verdict not only on the death of Christ, on the burial of Christ, on the resurrection of Christ, but you have to give your verdict on these Clearly, chronologically arranged appearances of Jesus Christ. As if Paul is making a careful defense of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Then he did this, then he did this, then he did this. And he says, listen, these people, many of whom are still alive, you can ask them. But not only does he point out the chronology according to, uh, uh, of, of, these, of, of his resurrection, but he also points out the character of the witnesses. I don't know about you, but as I look at these people that he points out, Cephas, who's that referring to? Peter, the 12 minus one, Judas, and then 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He appeared to James. James, who's James? This is the, the writer of the book of James, the, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared again to all the apostles and then last to me. What do you notice about their character? None of these people were, you know, they weren't, um, they weren't homers. 
They weren't people who just, these people did not at first trust in the veracity of the reliability upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of them, all of them actually originally denied either the resurrection of Christ or Christ himself. All of them. These people, as I said, aren't homers. They're people who had opposed or denied the Lord Jesus Christ, initially rejected the resurrection. Even his own brother, his own brothers, John 7, 3 through 10 tells us that his own brothers didn't believe him until after they had witnessed him. They'd seen him face to face in the resurrection. But what's the point? They all eventually came to embrace Christ. They all eventually came to embrace the living Christ. They saw him face to face. And the the opinion that they once had, the opinion they once shared, was radically changed along with their life. Even though at once they did not believe something happened. What was it that happened? What was it that changed their lives? What was it that changed their opinions? It was the living Christ himself. Not only does he point out the chronology and the character, but also he points out the collection. There were so many witnesses. Hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness testimonies regarding the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has been declared. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared. And you say, well, what is all this about? Well, let me just cut to the chase. Follow me to verse 17 of chapter 15 for a moment. Verse 17 of chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But what? But he has been raised. And because he has been raised, your faith is not Futile. Praise the Lord. If I'd have said that in Africa last week, they'd have been jumping. They'd have been swinging from the rafters if they could have reached them. He has been raised, and because he has been raised, your faith is not futile. Therefore, you who have received the gospel are no longer in your sins. And that, friends, is why there is a place for you at the table. Praise the Lord. How do you apply this? Well, three ways. One, you come to the table. If you are a genuine believer in Christ, you come to the table knowing that there's a place for you because of Christ. Because Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. Christ rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared. You come to the table and you do so with... with Confident, humble, joy. Second way to apply this. If you're not a believer, well, what's keeping you from being a believer? If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin and holding unto him alone, making him the the foundation of your hope, then why not do it right now? In fact, right there where you're seated. In your heart, right before God, 
confess your sin right now. Tell him. Tell him you understand your sin has earned you death and hell. Tell him you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless life, that he never sinned, not even one time. Tell him you understand that God laid on Christ the sin of us all when he died on the cross. Tell him you understand he was buried and that he rose again the third day and that he appeared to many. Tell him, confess your faith in Christ. Believe on him with your heart. And then this simple promise, and you will be saved. You'll be rescued. The third way to apply this is to be reminded this morning about those whom we have affirmed as members in, Christ, in this church, as members of the body of Christ, but are not here because they're in love with this present world. And so uh, they're pursuing sin, appear to be walking from Christ. What do we do? We, we ought to feel their absence this morning and pray, oh God, send out the hounds of heaven. Go get them. This is a very clear application this morning that hits every one of us. May it not be that you just sit there unmoved, uncaring. But maybe you hear this message with great spiritual effect. For some of you, today will be the day when you first, finally, for the first time, confess faith in Christ. For others, you'll be coming to this table with a great boldness, recognizing that he, that this table is prepared for you. You know, by, by taking communion this morning, it doesn't give us anything. We're not somehow earning favor with God or making ourselves savable or more saved. We all understand that, right? But it's really the celebration of the church coming together, saying that there is one truth, and that is Christ and Christ alone. We invite you to this table. You don't have to be a member here to, to come, but you take this seriously. You have to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you don't, and you're not willing to confess your faith in Christ today, then just, let, when the tray comes, you just let it pass. Just let it pass. But think, man, are you really willing to let the grace of God just pass you by? Don't do that. We'll take just a few moments of quiet reflection. Make sure that we're right where we need to be with the Lord. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you need to confess. Just get things right before the Lord. Confess your sin before Christ individually. Uh, Make sure that you're in the faith. If you're not in the faith, like I said, you do business with God right there. Right where you're seated, you do business with Him. Confess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him. And then after a few moments, the elders will come and we'll um, disperse the elements. We'll do it one by one, first the bread, then the cup. What we'd like to do is everybody receives together at once and then we'll eat together at once as well. So just hold it until we receive kids. Um, This is a good opportunity for you to be thinking about this. Maybe your parents say, not yet, it's not time for you yet, and that's okay. You just listen to them. Maybe even talk to them a little bit about the gospel. Talk to your mom and dad while you're sitting there. Remind... Remind yourself about what these truths are that we're reminding ourselves of. Remind yourself of the gospel and use this time to prepare your hearts uh, before the Lord. So just a few moments of quietness. Um, elders will come and be ready and then we'll, um, we'll pass out the elements.
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says these words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.